This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress. New South Wales TAB punters, here is your chance to share in $1.3 million in prize money when the Kosciuszko is run at Royal Randwick on October the 17th. You could share in the ownership of one of the 14 runners in the world's richest race for country trained horses. You're in the running if you purchase a $5 ticket via the Tab app or at your local TAB outlet or enter as many times as you like by purchasing multiple tickets. Ticket sales close on September the 7th and 14 winners will be drawn on September the 9th. If your name or the name of your syndicate is drawn, you'll then have the opportunity to select a horse to race in your entry. Then your negotiating skills will be put to the test as you endeavour to reach agreement with the owners regarding a prize money split. Bell Flyer won it in 2018, Handle the Truth won it last year. You could share in the ownership of the 2020 Kosciuszko winner when the big race is run at Randwick on October the 17th. Tickets are available right now via your Tab app or at your local TAB outlet. Widely respected Victorian trainer John Ledger has spent most of his waking hours around horses. He was born and reared in the idyllic little hamlet of Mulwhaler in the Riverina and was an early starter at Pony Club. By age eight, he was riding show jumpers. In his twenties, he was breaking in and pre-training thoroughbreds. At 30, he was training horses professionally and now at 65, he looks back on a career which has brought him somewhere between 550 and 600 winners. After many years of training and breaking in at Yarrawonga on the south bank of the mighty Murray, John is now operating a training partnership with his son Chris on a magnificently appointed complex right on the Wangaratta racecourse. The father-son combination and a dedicated staff of 20 prepare a team of around 30 racehorses with a similar number of breakers and pre-trainers going through the system all year round. He has many enthralling yarns to tell about his life's journey with horses and horsemen. We can't possibly cover them all in one podcast, but we'll give it a nudge. John Ledger, I'm glad to pin you down for a chat. Good morning, John. It's a pleasure to be uh, interviewed and have a chat to you. I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm well aware of your achievements and exploits in the racing game over a long period of time. And whenever I see the royal blue with the orange sleeves, I think of you and, and your wonderful racing heritage. Yeah, thank you. My father uh, got those colours together in the 60s. We had a very prominent businessman in Yarrawonga, Mr Ted Judd, and he had a, he had a few horses and they all had the prefix of Wonga something and he had a very mm. good horse called Wonga Star and Wonga Bell and whatever else and Mr Judd was uh, having trouble seeing the colours that he had and he asked mum and dad to find him a set of colours and in the 60s they, mum and dad come up with the uh, at the time royal blue orange sleeves and cap and uh, brother mm. George carried it on after that and when George passed away I took it over. It became obvious, John, that if you were going to continue as a commercial trainer and yearling breaker, you would have to leave Yarrawonga, where six generations of your family had lived. Yeah, John, I was blessed. Yarrawonga, Mawala, 
I don't think a person could grow up in a better era in time, in history, or a better place. You know, the, um, Moala was such a sweet little town of, you know, around about a 1,000 people where you nearly knew everybody. Mm. My my wife, Kerry, um, she lived up on the hill a couple of K away, and her father was an electrician at the explosive factory. My father was a fitter and turner at the same factory, and three mm. to 400 local people worked in that factory. So it was a great place to grow up and uh, and it's where we started riding and, and had so much fun and so much of my life was spent there. The first thing you did when you moved to Wangaratta was to build a rambling American-style barn which houses 60 boxes. Now, the dimensions of that barn and the actual boxes themselves are mind-boggling. Yeah, my brother George was, uh, he built and and uh, moved around Yarrawonga district and then down to Benalla as his stable grew back in the 70s and 80s. And and uh, when you build and round horses all the time, you design something that is practical. And uh, the roof design of that building was done by George on his deathbed in uh, Cancer Hospital in Melbourne. He handed mm. me a bit of paper and he said, you can't stay in Yarrawonga for your next uh section of your life so mm. he just handed me this bit of paper with that roof drawn onto it and he said that's the type of barn you need to build and then he left the inside unfinished so I built the the barn to George's dream mm. and I built the inside to my experience and I've got to say I'm very very proud of it and because George designed it it means so much to me mm. I don't think he or myself ever dreamt it was going to be so big it's 100 metres long 30 over nearly 40 metres wide, mm. 60 boxes. They're all six metres square, big walkways, toilets, showers. <laughs> six so, six metres square? Yeah, the boxes are, yeah. Almost yeah. a spelling paddock. Well, that was my idea. You build these little boxes and then you go, you know, a couple of years later, you say, I need some yards for the horses, so I build yards outside. I thought mm. if I build big boxes, I won't need to replicate everything and then go and build yards. So I built these mm beautiful big boxes and then I was lucky enough to have a trip to Kentucky with a friend who had a daughter working in one of the vet clinics over there and mm. I went over there with three weeks into Kentucky and I went down to Churchill Downs and looking through the barns there and an elderly gentleman come up to me and he asked me what I was doing and where mm. I was from and whatever and he showed me his barn and, and it was a, a small, a very small version of what I have now because he told me that you need the mesh walls were great for ventilation and kept fresh air through the horses and don't put any walls on your barn so they can be nice and uh, open and light. And Horses are herd animals and they hang around in corners together in trees and fours and We've seen all this now in the next 20 years come to fruition and, and this gentleman was so right. His knowledge was uncanny of how to build a stable and what kept horses very happy. Mm. Well, so that barn, it came from. John, that barn we're talking about is surrounded by several world-class appointments, including a trot and canter track. What else have you got there? Oh, the Wangaratta Turf Club, um, have been, have, thanks to... Um, you know, the Racing Victoria, they have really uh, got behind Wangaratta and poked a lot of money into this club over a number of years. And we have a four, four and a half million dollar fibre sand uh, come in in the last couple of years. We have uh, an inside grass, our course proper is second to none. 
Um, and the grandstand, you know, was in excess of $10 million that they've just completed with a big mm. function centre underneath. And so it's a magnificent country set up. And uh, any jockey that rides here and all the top trainers now send their horses here because no matter where you draw on the track, you've got a great chance. It's got a lovely 400-plus metre run-in. Mm. It's a lovely wide track with a cambered corner. So it makes racing here super. It's very safe and jockeys like to ride here and you can win from anywhere. You can lead. You can come from the back. Uh, and then over on my side of the fence, I've got a 10-horse walking machine. I've got an 8-horse water walker. I've got a 100-metre swimming pool. I've got a treadmill. and I've got undercover uh, braking yards, two of them. So mm. uh, with all, all those things here and, and Chris is a twin, so his twin brother Bradley isn't on the training sheet. I try and get him to get on the training sheet, but he does, and he likes to be called the racing manager, but he tells Chris and I what to do. Mm. So Chris got the, the twin brother in Brad. So Brad looks after Adrian Park, the farm, and uh, he keeps Chris and I very, very honest, and he's a freak at riding excellent track work and getting all the mm. time spot on, and he does a great job, Brad, in the saddle. He's, he's unbeatable. If any of our listeners would like to have a quick little sticky beak at the Ledger Racing Complex, the next time the races are on at Wangaratta, tune in, just have a look, and you will see the Ledger Racing Complex stretching the full length of the back straight. And I think all up you're on some 20 acres there. Yes, Johnny, just behind the house here we've got a 600-metre trotting and cantering track that runs down to the chute. But, um, yeah, it does take up, it takes up the whole uh, thousand metres of the back straight and uh, mm. it's just a wonderful, um, you know, Brother George was so right. Um, he said go to Wangaratta. It was the right place to go to train. He was in Manala, but he said don't come down here. Go to Wang. It's got everything you'll ever want and mm. been really, really impressed with the um, way Racing Victoria have looked after the Wang Turf Club and, and we've got all these wonderful amenities to use regularly and, Fees are not too expensive for the owners and it's just really good. And with that, of course, you know, we handle so many of those really well-bred horses of Mick Prices and they're out on that beautiful. And, you know, I think it's got a bit, lot to do with mm. Mick. Would, you know, he's happy to have those very expensive yearlings and, and racehorses train out on the Wangaratta complex, you know. Mm. So I think it's hand-in-hand hand with everything that goes for our business. John, your remarkable life with horses began... A long, long time ago, you created a reputation as a master horseman pretty early in life. You first jumped a horse in your pony club days and you loved it. Yeah, it was something that uh, I just found so easy and uh, I really did enjoy it and it was um, something that you could just, you and your your horse could achieve and I've just loved horses. I just absolutely love them. I don't know where it came from or why, but I just live for them. They can't, you know, they, I can't get enough of them. I'm still 65 out of bed every morning as early as I can and work down there all day and just mm. strive for success and perfection and, uh, and I get a lot back out of it. I feel good around them. I feel happy. Um, they've given me the ultimate um, challenges, but I've been able to, because of my love of the animal and uh, I've been able to come through it. And uh, my wife, Kerry, is not a horse person, but her support for me and my dreams has been unwieldy. She's just been fabulous all the way through. 
and, uh, you know, things get tough in all businesses and all lives and, you know, she's just been there all the time to, to keep it all together for me. So I've been able to, with the rock of that and, and my parents, um, no money, dad factory worker, um, just single wage, you know, uh, that these horses, they just, uh, everybody got behind me and allowed me to have this, uh, this wonderful life. You got to a very high level in the show jumping world. You competed many times at the Sydney Royal and the Melbourne Royal. And on one occasion, you were champion boy rider at the Melbourne Royal. Can't get much better than that. No, Melbourne was very good to me. Um, my first big win came after we were riding around the country area up in north, northern Victoria and the Riverina for many, many years. And Got hold of a really good horse and and uh, went down to Barristock Horse of the Year, which in those days were Melbourne Showgrounds and it was a massive event. And uh, we were lucky enough to win it. and And then the next level went to another phase in our in our show jumping ability after the opening the door with the Barristock Award. So, um, yeah, look, I I can't thank my parents enough, Johnny. Um, mm. You know, Mum Mum worked in a local roadhouse uh, not far from the Yarrawonga High School where George and I went mm. every day and her wages bought the chaff and paid the farrier. That's all she worked for. Goodness uh, me. You look back now and you think, my God, you know, what an effort to go to work five days a week to pay yeah. for your chaff, chaff and you pay for the farrier for your, for your kids, you know. Um, mm. I, you know, you, you just, the more you, th- the older you get and the more you think back, the sacrifices that our parents did for us are unbelievable. Yeah. You know, that good horse you're talking about uh, in the show jumping world, you stumbled upon at a Wagga horse sale. He wasn't a sleek, streamlined, tall, athletic thoroughbred. He was a small, chunky little bloke, predominantly a quarter horse, who couldn't jump a cavaletti early on, but at the end of it, he would have cleared Beecher's Brook. What attracted you to the little horse with the funny name, Nobby? Yeah, well, Nobby, actually, I didn't pick him. I'll be the first to admit that. Bob <laughs> Pritchard, a very, very close friend of mine and somebody who I've been with most of my show jumping life, who's a renowned horseman up in Indigo Valley and uh, an astute cattle farmer and sheep man. Bob, uh, he's done so much in the horse world, him and his wife, Daisy, and Bob uh, went up there looking for a horse for his son, Robert, and uh, come home with Nobby and uh, at the Border District Show Jumping Club in Wodonga one Sunday morning, asked me to jump on him and give him a, a few fences and see if he would suit Robert. And, uh, he didn't suit Robert. The other horse I was trying for Robert did suit him, so Rob took a horse called Bay Mop and they left me with Nobby and um, <laughs> it took took many, many years for Nobby to become Nobby, but when he did, yeah. Johnny, just a the greatest enjoyment I've ever had on horseback. He took me, uh, he gave me the greatest honour of, uh, you know, being on a list for the Olympics. We didn't get there, but we're on the list and we did mm. represent Australia overseas and a couple of times here in Australia and, and for a horseman to represent Australia, well, for anybody. And mm. but for me anyway, it was the proudest moment I've ever had on horseback, that's for mm. sure. You were selected on the Australian team to go to the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles but you were not able to come up with the right horse at that time. Big disappointment. Yeah, there was was 20 of us on the list and uh, most of us were quite – had the ability to go to the Olympics, but then it come back to horsepower and 
unfortunately, Nobby wasn't the right horse for an Olympic Games, and uh, and so I didn't get there. And of course, it's something that you always would love to have on your resume that you were an Olympian for Australia. Mm. And it wasn't to be. Uh, I wasn't disappointed in that sense. I wasn't dirty. Just wasn't to be, but I'd had a great journey and I had the great honour of being on the list and I had a great honour of wearing the Australian flag at, at other functions. So, mm. you know, you just got to go with it. It wasn't my turn and it didn't happen. John, your brother George, your late brother George, had a very valued client by the name of Frank Vodasek, who is now well in his 80s. He's still very active. He still has horses in your stable. And so does his good friend, Tony Tabor, who's a similar age. Yeah, Johnny, those two guys, have uh, they came in, I think, Frank in the late 60s and Tony the early 70s, so it's a long time ago now. Mm. And uh, they came to Dad's stables where we had four boxes in our backyard in Mowala, only a couple of hundred metres from the, from the lake itself. We had a beautiful spot there. And they came in uh, with Ted Judd, the, the chap that asked for the different colours, and, uh, and gave that a horse each, and, and that was our start. And Frank has been unbelievable owner ever since. Uh, he had a few shares in horses with Ted Judd and, and Tony Tabor, and then uh, he owned a big abattoir in Cobram, employing some 300 people, I think, and was a, a very, very big uh, meat buyer. Mm. And he would travel around buying all his own stock. And the great story about Frank is that he went out to Hay, to Abbey Heaton's place, mm. and he would be buying cattle. And Abby always was breeding a horse or two, and Kenny Sweeney was his trainer at that time. And uh, he was sell a sell a few that we didn't need, or he, he wanted to move on. And he had a little bay horse sitting in the cattle yards, and he asked Frank to have a look at it. And Frank said, "Yeah, I'll have a look at it. Have a look at it. Buys it. I think I think three to five thousand dollars, something like that. I know it wasn't a huge amount of money." George went out there a week or two later and picked him up and took him home, and that horse became Richfield's lad. Mm. He was a super galloper. Wasn't he? He won the Ledger's only group one. He won a Galaxy in Sydney with Gary Williton. Mm. Um, he had an avicular most of his career, but he still won a lot of races. Um, he also, I think he won his first race in town at Sandown with Carol Tucker on, and yeah. Carol was one of the George – um, apprentice Carol, and mm. um, he went through a lot of grief, uh, making way for girls to ride in Victoria at that time. Mm, that was he, a tough he, era for the girls. Yeah, he lost horses because he put her on. Mm. Uh, owners walked away because he stuck by her. Today, what a, what a change the world's seen because of people like George. Mm. Well, and Frank Bodasek was a guy. Um, who gave George permission to use Carol all yeah, the time. So it was very, him. very good of Frank, yeah. I remember calling Richfield Lad in Sydney when he won the Galaxy and I'm sure I saw Carol Tucker win a race on him at Randwick one day. You did. And uh, there was another time when Carol didn't ride him quite so well and Kenny Callender gave her a little blast in the Sydney Morning Herald or whatever paper <laughs> it was at the time. Yeah. And uh, But George was just more – when that came out, George was just more determined to put her on next time. You know, that, mm. that was the way you had to be when you were trying to get the girls into the industry in that era. Yeah. And, and George did a great job. He, he got kicked in the guts many times for Carol Tucker, but he did mm. 
And for these girls riding today, it's only for people like George and many others that stuck by these girls that made racing the way it is today for the girls. You mm. know, so you it's started very good. You started breaking and pre-training at around twenty-eight or twenty-nine years of age for Uncle George, for Ken Sweeney, and the Freya family. But because you needed to take horses to the Wangaratta track as part of their education, you had to take out a trainer's licence. And the joyous occasion of your first training win is an indelible memory. The horse was a chestnut mare called Dawn's Lass, 20th of February 1988 at Gerildery, of all places, in the Riverina. And who do you think the rider was? Carol Tucker. Yeah, it's, it's quite amazing, isn't it? And, um, yeah, look, uh, you know, those Tony Tabor, George got, had the horse and Tony Tabor and, and George had a discussion and said that, you know, I'd be more than welcome to take it over and train it so I can get my licence. And uh, Geraldry, I think it was the first, I'm not positive, but I think it was the first race there after they turned the dirt track into turf. And, uh, and we got the chocolates and, and we went back there later that year and, and won another race there. But, yeah, it was a great thrill to, uh, to go out there and win my, my first starter. Um, and it was uh, something really special. And Carol did ride, along with Peter Robel, they both rode a lot of winners for me in my early part of my career. They were both from Benalla. They rode my work for me and they were a great, great help in get, you know, learning the trade. English sales graduates dominated the Group 1 scene right through the 2019-2020 season. They got away to a flying start when Samadout won the Wink Stakes, the first Group 1 of the season. Vow and Declare won the Melbourne Cup, Exceedance won the Coolmore Stud Stakes, Super Seth won the Caulfield Guineas, Natoya the Doncaster, Quick Thinker the Australian Derby, and Nature Strip the TJ Smith, just to name a few. In total, Australia's leading thoroughbred auctioneers provided 22 individual Group 1 winners. They had the biggest number of stakes winners who won the biggest number of races. Inglis sold the highest number of three-year-old Group 1 winning colts and the highest number of stakes winning fillies and mares. Won't be long now and the Group 1 round starts all over again with the Wink Stakes at Randwick on August the 22nd. You can bet the English graduates will be right in the thick of the action again in the new racing season. A gelding called Avon Ranch has got his own page in your scrapbook for very good reason. In winning a two-year-old race down the straight at Flemington in July 1997, he gave you your maiden city win and your son Adrian, his first winner in town, and we'll be paying tribute to Adrian a little later on in the podcast. But Avon Ranch was a special horse. Yeah, Avon Ranch came through Tony Tabor. And, of course, Tony was very loyal. He's still loyal. They're so loyal. I mean, you just can't believe it. But Tony had Avon Ranch and he had a men's land shop in Yarrawonga for some 40 years and he got all the travellers involved in the horse. And, and uh, so it was a, a lot of fun. And to, I hadn't tried to win a race in town. Um, I'd just been poking along quietly with no huge ambitions. And if I got a Melbourne horse, I got one. If I didn't, I didn't. Anyway, Aidan, I thought he was working well enough to go down there and we took him down and he duly got the chocolates and um, 
I look back now, John, after all that we've been through and, and just think how magnificent it was to be able to share it with Adrian at, at headquarters at Flemington. It was such a special day and that photo and that horse certainly uh, hold a, a place in my heart for that very reason. When your brother George passed away much too soon in 1998, most of his horses went to city stables or to other parts of Victoria. You inherited only one. But boy, wasn't it the right one. Brave Chief. He won 18 races in all. You had him for 15 of those wins, including 11 in town. Adrian won seven races on him. But coming into the Group 2 Sandown Classic of 2000, he recommended a change of rider. Doesn't that tell you something about the selfless, fair-mindedness of Adrian Ledger? Yeah, Johnny, I'll never forget it. Uh, I was I was being a cunning father. I wasn't being a, a, an astute horse trainer. The horse, I had the horse. Aid and I had the horse super. I thought, you know, Aid deserves his chance on this horse in this Sandown race. It's a true Clark group two race it's there's no group oneers in it where we haven't got a northerly or sunline or anything we we're a great chance and he just uh come off the track and it was a, the horse had just had a little sharp sprint up on the thursday and they just walked in and just said oh daddy's just flying he's spot on and he's still sitting on his back and he and i've got half an hour to go before i don't get a phone call mm. for a jockey to hop on him and if i don't get a phone call aid's got him in the race mm. anyway as it near nears and nears to nine o'clock or whatever time they had to be on, um, he just looked down at me off the horse's back and he said, "Dad, I know Paddy Payne hasn't got a ride in this race. I think you should ring him." Goodness me! And so I did, and he took the ride, and the rest was history. He won the race in a, in an mm. Australian record time for twenty four hundred meters, and mm. uh, age strapped him. Mm. He had, he had a tear in his eye that he didn't ride him, but you know he was such a, a great kid. And yeah. a great person that he just he took it and he moved on, you know. Yeah, he just felt that he probably wasn't experienced enough at that level. You believe he was, and he probably was, but he wanted to give the owner and the horse every opportunity. He did, he did, yep, yep. And, you know, he was part of the team, and, and as you know in horses, if you haven't got a team, you've got nothing, you know. Uh, mm. Selfishness will get you nowhere. Uh, and you need to share ideas, you need to share the love of the animal and you need to share the workload. And, and Aid, Aid and I did all this here, what we built, what we've got. Um, it was our tr- our dream. Mm. And, um, you know, his brothers have come along later and, and, and helping fulfil that dream. But um, he was very special and the way he conducted himself over that Brave Chief matter was just, mm. you know, unparalleled, as you've mentioned. It was just Mm. outstanding as an individual person. Mm. About a year later, you and the whole family had a nightmare experience with Brave Chief when he literally collapsed coming off the walking machine at home. He was terribly distressed when you got him onto the float and headed for the Gulban Valley Veterinary Centre at Shepparton and into the hands of an eminent vet in Jim Vasey. Now, you tell me Adrian actually got in the float with the horse during that mercy dash. Yeah, we'd worked him and uh, the plan was to head off to Sydney for the BMW. It was after the um, 
Sandown Classic. The horse was in the race, was eligible to get in the race, no worries. He was in great form. Mm-hmm. He'd worked like a machine. They would just come back and said, Dad, he's just come on from Sandown. He's just better and better. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, we'll work him today and we'll get ready in two days to head up to Sydney and go down the normal path. And everything was fine and one of the staff was taking him off the walker and he only took about five or six paces outside the walking machine. He just collapsed and and he had ruptured uh, his uh, intestine mm. and he was in diabolical trouble. He just knew straight away. He dropped onto his knees. He was white with sweat. He was panting. Mm. Um, and we got him onto the back of the truck and, and then we got three or four 20-litre drums of water and a couple of towels and then pushed the horse into the truck and pushed Adrian in with him. Mm. And I made the dash to Golden Valley, which t- took just over the hour. Mm. And uh, I only stopped once to see if they were both okay at the halfway mark. And, and uh, I said, no point stopping, Dad, just keep going. Did he? Yeah. And we got him over there and um, Aid had uh, doused him down with wet towels the whole trip. Mm. And uh, we got him into surgery and, and Jim uh, worked on him all night. He came out, looked a million dollars, and then um, he relapsed. And Jim said, well, when you've got to go back in within 24 hours, you're in trouble. So mm. we went back in in, in 24 hours. Went back in about one o'clock in the morning. We're all there, and uh, they did an unbelievable job. They pulled his intestine out and they massaged it by hand for mm. half an hour, forty-five minutes. Of you know, just all these vets and uh, nurses and everything, all uh, massaging the horse's intestine to get Incredible. it to function yeah. again, and then put it back in and. Um, he came back and won a race, John, so it's an incredible story. Yes, incredible. he had 12 more runs when you got him back. He won an open handicap at Sandown, ridden by a little girl who was destined to be a future star, Michelle Payne. Wasn't she? She was uh, a wonderful uh, girl. At that, Even at that early point, she was such a darling, and it was so sad that, you know, we couldn't use her more on him. Uh, she really fell in love with him. She gave him a few rides. It wasn't her fault because he was past his prime due to what had happened to him. But um, it was a great thrill, and, and that photo holds uh, a very high place down on my wall. I don't have many mm. photos on the wall, but I, I do have that one standing up because mm. of uh, of his comeback and Michelle, and mm. uh, she was so generous in her time and, and was a, such a – only a little young girl at the time, and uh, it's mm. been wonderful to see her rise and her fame. She really deserves it, Johnny. Now, John, only a few weeks ago, Brave Chief passed away on your property, Adrian Park, which is 15 kilometres down the road at the wonderful age of 28. He'd had the best of care and attention and affection from the Ledger family for 17 years following his racing career. Yeah, it's uh, just going back to the very start of that. um, And uh, he came from the same cattle yards, from the same farm at Hay Mm. as Richfield's lad did all those years earlier. Frank only bought two horses out of those yards and they were the two horses. Mm. So that's quite, a, a, you know, um, unbelievable feat. And then, yeah. and then, and then he stayed in our family right till the very, very end. And he tried pony club and he tried show jumping and he did it all, but he wasn't—he wasn't that good at it. Old Harry, Harry was his nickname, but <laughs> he was just part of the furniture. The boys would hop on him and go for a ride occasionally, and 
he would nanny the foals and nanny any racehorse that needed a partner and some of the bully colts that you wanted to look after and make sure they didn't get kicked, you just put them in with Harry and he just did his job. And it was a, certainly a tear in my eye when the boys rang up and said, we just found Harry in the paddock, I can tell you. Oh, I can imagine. John, we're going to bring the curtain down on segment one of our podcast interview. Uh, we'll be back very, very shortly to begin segment two and many more tales from Master Horseman John Ledger from Wangaratta in Victoria. We'll be back in a click. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis.